The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Got it. Anton, how's it going? Hey, it goes well. How about for you? Awesome. Um, myself and Frank are super happy to have you with us. Glad to join you. Sorry, it took me a couple of minutes to get the tech sorted out, but we're yeah, with you now. No problem. Well, at least you're with us. So, I mean, are you happy just to kind of jump into this? I mean, we kind of just free flow. It's it's very chilled. It's we're just here to have a conversation and and learn from you. That's what we have for. Sure. Sure, so go I, for it. I I thought like a, a really good starting question, if you don't mind, and and obviously with respect, um, I'd like you to give us a brief outline, you know, of your background and uh, how you came to the work that you're doing, and maybe explain, you know, to, to the listeners what that work is, because I think that'll give us a really good context as we move into the conversation. Okay, sure. So my name is Anton Troyer. My native name is Wagush. So I, I'm Ojibwe, which is one of the tribes indigenous to the Great Lakes region. Mm. And I'm a fluent speaker of Ojibwe. My native name, Wagosh, means fox. I come from the Eagle Clan. In our tribe, we have a clan system, kind of different from the Scottish clan systems, which are more family groupings. And these are animals, birds, and fish that double as a symbol for your family, as well as a spiritual guide of sorts. From the Eagle Clan, I come from Leech Lake, which is one of a number of Ojibwe uh, reservations. Mine's in northern Minnesota, and our geographic span is really throughout the Great Lakes in both the United States and Canada. In my professional work, I'm a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, so I teach our tribal language, history, and culture. Um, I'm formally trained as a historian, and I kind of wear a number of hats. So I, I have many publications out now. Uh, some of them are, you know, history books. Some of them are language books that range from dictionaries to kind of more literary things. And then I also have some broad general reader things, everything you wanted to know about Indians, but were afraid to ask um, kind of work. I kind of sit on a three-legged stool. So one of those is the academic work I just described. Um, another one is I live in my home community, which is maybe not as common as you might think among indigenous academicians who often have to leave their community to go to a big, you know, university somewhere. Uh, and I'm at the service of our community. So I officiate at naming ceremonies, even traditional funerals and kind of everything in between. In spite of 500 pretty rough years, we have a very rich cultural um, tradition in our area. And then the third leg of the stool is uh, racial equity, kind of cultural competency work. To me, all of those things inform one another, like mm -hmm. three big strands of a braid, and they they feed one another. But that's a 20,000 foot view of some of what I'm, what I'm doing. No, that's amazing. And I've got some questions on that. I, I guess one of the questions I want to ask you is, just to kind of get a sense of your worldview, how do you see the modern world? What is your perception of it? Good, bad, disastrous, or our savior? I mean, what is your, your take on the modern world, especially right now in this moment in time? Well, I think human beings have been pretty hard on each other at every phase of history. Mm. There, you know, there, there's this big debate about you know, what makes us the way we are? Is it nature or nurture? And I, I think there's always been a tug of war within the human population. Uh, we have conscious thought, which is something that differentiates us from most other species. And, you know, the evidence is there that we have been physically violent, hard on each other, and so forth. And I think there have been interventions in many fronts and fields, be they religious, political, you know, legal, that sometimes mitigate our, you know, violent and planet-destroying impulses to some degree. 
But we also just have so many more people now. We are scaled up so much more that, you know, our um, self-serving and self-interested inclinations um, challenge uh, the stability of our entire planet and ecosystems and things like that. So in terms of like, you know, your chance of dying a violent death as a human being is probably lower than it's been in human history. But the chance that the scale of our violent tendencies and environmental degradation will, you know, really mess things up are, you know, challenging the stability of this, of our, our human system. I, you know, the data is also saying that we are on our way to 20 billion people, which might sound terrifying when we're sitting here at 8 billion. Um, but that human birth rates well plateau. And that's about as many people as they're projecting on planet Earth. I'm not so much of the complete apocalypse viewpoint that like everything's coming to an end. It's, you know, there's no hope at all. But I think it is probable that we're doing too little too late to avoid significant impacts on the human population. So I think it is likely that the quality of the environment in which most humans live will be less um, healthy than it is now. I think human longevity, you know, may be negatively impacted and not completely offset by innovations in medical interventions and things like that. Um, and so I think we may broadly see a decline in standard of living and longevity, um, but I don't see humans perishing from planet Earth, um, you know, in the immediate future. So I'm, some people think it's right around the corner. Um, I'm less of that view. But, you know, we do so much damage to one another and so much is so unnecessary and we do so much damage to the world we live in and so much is so unnecessary you know, the ecological footprint, you know, for different countries, so different. There's no reason why we can't, you know, reduce or mitigate the damages that we're doing to the world we live in and to one another and do so at scale much more effectively. And I think we are seeing some glimmers of hope and effort in those directions. There's just so much resistance politically. And, um, you know, I think even just with the scale and structure of our societies to really do it fast enough to make as much of a difference as I'd like to see. So it's fascinating that you say that because it's interesting, Frank, we were pretty much talking about this exact thing just before you you jumped on the call. And, uh, you know, I have I have one thing that that I find fascinating about all of this is I actually wrote an article today, I was telling Frank, really the article is about this, what I call the religion of self and that's what I see as a big problem in the modern world where everybody is basically all in it for themselves. They're completely self-absorbed. They couldn't care less about anybody else. Their actions show that. And I think that is a symptom of the modern world and the modern world being the way that it is and what we are told that we should be doing in order to be considered, quote unquote, successful be that, you know, unbridled competition, survival of the fittest, consumerism, materialism, you know, do whatever you need to do to get to the top, regardless of who you have to trample in order to do that, is this constant narrative that's being presented. And so then I'm not, you know, I'm not that, uh, what's the word? I'm not like that, uh, you know, it's, it's not an, an unusual thing then to see what we're in, right? And then I can see why we've ended up in the state that we have, have but I think you kind of hinted to that is that most people are completely unconscious to this. It's not something that is in their consciousness and they are just basically just keeping their head down and doing the best that they can without looking at the ramifications on how their actions impact everybody else around them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I, you know, if you go back only 10,000 years in human history, which in the span of human history isn't actually that long ago, all of us lived in villages. We all had earth-based worldviews. We harvested resources collectively and we shared them across the population rather than keeping them to ourselves or just for our nuclear family. And our worldviews were very different. 
And it's one thing to profess communalism, you know, but if you think about it, you know, we didn't survive cave bears and saber toothed tigers because we accumulated more resources than the person in the next cave or because we outcompeted them. You know, we survived those things because the people in the next cave loved us and they would intervene if we were in danger. Psychologically, we are hardwired to need and to crave connection, community, belonging, but especially, you know, after the dawn of the agricultural age, when you start to see stratification of societies and hierarchy and colonization, you know, you start getting an us-them approach to things. And ultimately, it leads you to these things that you just mentioned, individualism, competition, materialism. Like how many board games do we even have where nobody wins and nobody loses? And there are a couple where like everybody gets off the sinking islands together or nobody does or things like that, but not too many. And usually I'm crushing the kids at chess or destroying them in a game of risk or whatever. And so we are enculturated to this all the time. And, you know, the idea of a success is, you know, how many degrees and diplomas and how big your bank account is. And no matter how awful your character, if you have those things, you're a great success. Shoot, you could even be president of the United States, you know, but ultimately, you know, that really harms us at the individual level and every other way, like for, for our collective societies. And I do think that this is one area where many indigenous cultures have retained more than a vestigial remnant of some very different ways of looking at things and structuring things. And it makes such a difference you know, I mentioned at the beginning how I, I often do racial equity work and all this culture and language work and how they feed each other. But I'll speak exactly to this individualism thread. Like so often, you know, people, when you say something like there's a problem with sexism, many men are defensive. Wait a minute. I'm a good guy. You don't know me. But we're not saying you're not a good guy. We're saying women aren't as safe as men in many environments. And we'd like to do something about that. Yeah. You know, we say there's a problem with racism. People start thinking in because of the individualism filter. If there's racism, there has to be a racist. If they're not looking at themselves, they must be looking at me. Wait a minute. I'm a good person. You don't know me. And they're defensive at the level of individual character. But what we're saying is that people of color don't get to live as long. And we'd like to do something about that, you know? But this individualism thing gets us gets in the way of a productive conversation. And if you think about something that many humans still do, which is become parents, you know, our expectations around parenthood, are we don't expect that to be comfortable. We know there will be fever and puke and up all night and, you know, ornery teenagers and whatever. But because that's our expectation, you know, we can still fall in love with our kid and will be motivated to figure all the things out that they need. And being a parent can still be a very positive and rewarding experience, you know, and it's really that it's falling in love with your kid and having reasonable expectations. And I think with our big societal problems, people have unreasonable expectations for racial comfort and gender comfort don't actually love, you know, the people who are next to them. Uh, and cause if you, didn't just profess, but actually did like love thy neighbor as thyself. We would experience some discomfort to make sure that they had an equal shot at longevity. If, you know, if we love justice, we would endure some discomforts to engineer that. And so I do think it's this individualism focus and filter that often gets in the way but we do have some powerful tools that can help us navigate those things. So I'm not sure if you're interested in me sharing, you know, culturally specific examples that, you know, we do with, you know, in my community or with my family, but, you know, some of those things I think give me ideas about how we might be able to think about this, you know, broadly. Hmm. So that actually is my next question. 
But before I do that, I want to give Frank an opportunity to to jump on in here. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, one thing I'm curious about is the role of Native voices in the modern world. And my perception seems to be that Native Indigenous people are getting more traction in the in the conversation globally. And is am I right about that? Number one, and isn't that interesting? Because going from being in a situation of oppression to possibly a leadership role in the modern world, it, it, am I right in thinking that way? Um, I think so. There's certainly a shift in um, perceptions in many different areas. So, you know, of course, any group of people that have experienced, you know, oppression have often been marginalized and voices have been rendered invisible. And, you know, one of the first fights is a fight for a seat at the table or access to the microphone. Um, you know, but that's really just a beginning. Then it's empowered voices and equal numbers of seats at the table and all these sorts of things. And I do think these efforts are emerging and they're evolving, but they are happening uh, in some places in different ways. You know, like in the United States where I live, you know, there is a retained tribal sovereignty that of course has been under assault and whittled away at but because of that specific legal status you know if there's a state law well the one of the most obvious ones would be that says gaming and gambling is illegal except for powerball pull tabs and church bingo then those laws won't apply to tribes because they're separate sovereigns um, who are not subject to state authority and they can have a casino operation or something like that but some of those protections for sovereignty have also enabled tribes to have, you know, sustainable um, food programs and, you know, community building and things like that. I was doing work in Mille Lacs and they, you know, it, it's kind of incredible to me what they have done with their resources. You know, they've got a elder in all of the classrooms in the school there. They, um, you know, have been producing Rosetta Stone for their language and building literacy efforts for their kids in the tribal language. They've um, put ceremonial dance halls in all the buildings. They're trying to do things, you know, um, that tend to health. They have um, spiritual leaders who have offices right next to the medical doctors in the clinic and people can engage in tribal healing modalities as well as modern medicine. You know, like there are all kinds of interesting things happening on the national and international stage. Um, that has provided kind of a springboard for um, greater voice. And certainly we've seen Native people active at the United Nations level um, and in many different countries. It's not the case, though, that like rising tides have lifted all boats. Like they're still clear cutting the Amazon, dispossessing and moving tribes that have had very little contact with the rest of the world you know, resource extraction, even lithium mines in Nevada are in some of the most impoverished indigenous communities. There's still all kinds of oppressions and power dynamics. But I think there have been all kinds of wake up calls, you know, even things like a blockbuster film like Black Panther had people realize you don't need a bunch of white people at the center of every story for everybody to consume it. And that was like a wake up call for Hollywood. And uh, people have realized that, you know, you actually can have a black president who's like not going to look out only for black people, you know, and that was like, really, um, of course that exposed, you know, not the beginning of color blindness, but a whole nother level of racism, presidential racism, you know, and we've had the pushback in some ways, I think Trump's victory was a response to our first black president is, you know, among many other things. But um, so having said all of that, Yes, Native voices are rising. They are becoming more empowered. We are penetrating the ranks of academia, um, effective social activism, and politics in new ways in many different places. And all of that is very encouraging. And it's not just in places like the United States. I'd say that's even more obvious in Canada or New Zealand, for example. Um, you know, But all of these efforts are emerging. And I don't think the Maori... Indigenous Canadians, you know, or Native Americans would be saying, 
we've reached the promised land of, you know, equal treatment, empowerment, and longevity, but we're on our way. Mm, that's good. I mean, yeah, I was just thinking while you were saying that and coming back to what I wanted to ask you when we're talking about individuality, one of the things that is very recognizable if you looking at the current research is that there has been an exponential increase in mental health and well-being issues across the board. Again, I correlate that back to modernity, all the things we talked about. So I guess my question would be, how can indigenous knowledge systems contribute to the present discourse on mental health and well-being? Because it definitely is something that is concerning for many, many people, myself included, because I deal with people who are having these crises every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there's more and more research coming out that is informing and helping us understand what's going on with us. You know, first of all, all human beings have trauma somewhere in their family tree. Um, we're learning more about the epigenetic imprint of trauma. That's something that has happened in a previous generation, you know, has this epigenetic imprint over your core, you know, genetic code that really affects us. So we may be even have very specific triggers that we're not aware why this is triggering us into something that had something to do with an experience that we ourselves did not personally experience, but someone in our family tree had. And all of the evidence is pointing to this. They're great books like, you know, it didn't start with you and others that, you know, kind of lay out all of this. So for anyone, even the most privileged, insulated and well-supported human being, we may have an unexpected depression that comes out of nowhere. We may have self-destructive behavior and we have to wrangle with, you know, the violence and mistreatment of previous generations. And by the way, it's not just the victims of violence, but the perpetrators of violence who are deeply traumatized by the experience. And it's not an accident to me that, you know, white males who've kind of been at the top of the pecking order, dominate the roles of school shooters and serial killers too. We all need healing. And of course, the, the effects of these things on highly marginalized and oppressed peoples are significant. So instead of things popping up here and there, they may pop up like popcorn. And so we have to deal with that. And I do think that there are tools and ways that we can approach healing um, as individuals, but as a society. And I think the collective efforts are so needed. Like, you know, I know there's some controversy about these um, rat park studies. I don't know if you've seen, oh. seen those, you know. I've, uh, I've, spoken, I've spoken with the guy who did the rat park study. So. Oh, okay. Talk about that. Yeah. Bruce Alexander. Yeah. Right. Right. But I think, you know, in spite of, you know, some people have pushed back because obviously there are these hooks in these chemical substances that can, you know, take people down pretty quickly. And um, it's not as simple as just looking at the environmental things. But I think one of the um, lessons we can see from those studies is that, you know, we have for so long treated things like depression, anxiety, mental health crisis or substance abuse as an individual's problem to be handled with individual counseling, you know, so they can deal with the hooks to their individual psyche and how it affects them. When in reality, you know, our environment has such a tremendous impact on our coping mechanisms, um, how we are going to numb or deal with pain uh, and you know, our mental health trajectory. And so, you know, when we take a communal approach to healing, I think we see some of our best results. Instead of just individual counseling, what does a healthy environment look like? I mean, in the most simple case, if you're hanging around with people using and boozing, what happens? And if you hang around with other people, imperfect though we all are, trying to lead a spiritual life, what happens? You know, and this is why paying attention to that environment and trying to, you know, enculturate healthy ways of dealing with, you know, our epigenetic troubles, as well as our contemporary traumas, I think is, you know, 
healthy. And one of the things that I see in, in the native space where we have tools, examples, ceremonies, active and living practices that can help people do that. Are you familiar with a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger? No, I'm not. Oh, you you might want to have a look because he he was a war correspondent and he he wrote some very popular books, including uh, Perfect Storm. But um, he talks about veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, coming back to American culture, which, of course, as we've talked about, highly individualistic. And he compares that experience with Native people coming back to their communal environment and suffering a lot less of that of that shock on return and mm -hmm. he the way he puts it he talks about the 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 way veterans are treated as isolated individuals or even as medical objects he said that that's the wrong way to approach it he said the problem is not with them as individuals the problem is with us as a community mm -hmm. And sure. so it's a very much a pro-Indigenous, pro-social kind of approach. Quite a good book. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give it a look. Yeah. So I think my question, Anton, that I'm really interested in, especially considering you're a historian, if we look at Indigenous cultures, I'd really like to explore with you how did they, and I'm talking about now, I'm talking historically as much as we can understand, how did they view mental health? If somebody was, con I mean, did they even have words for that, right? I mean, what would they consider somebody as being mentally unhealthy? What would that be? And then how would they deal with it? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, Not a I lot do... of research on that. That's the thing. It's the reason why I'm asking right. that question. Yeah. And I don't think you're going to find a lot of, mm. you know, quantitative sure. research on that, but there's a lot of qualitative information that may be helpful in addressing it. You know, I think even in terms of, you know, in the Ojibwe language, which I speak, um, you know, what, how, how do we talk about this? Cause we pray for people and work with people with every kind of issue. And, you know, even the way that we describe and speak to the kind of myriad of issues that people may bring um, it's kind of different than you would get in a English language, which is a little more clinical, you know, diagnosis, it's a problem, treat it. But someone's having, in, as, as opposed to someone's having a problem with this or feeling this way, and here's how we can help that not stick so much and move in this way. Or, you know, um, that might sound really vague, but maybe a more specific example. For example, if somebody... Um, has experienced a death in the family and they're dealing with grief and loss and struggling for how to cope with it. One of the instincts that some people run to is a way to numb the pain rather than kind of go through the pain. Sometimes people get into substance abuse or things like that. So we have this ancient custom um, comes out of our ceremonial drums where the, the first person who would become a chief on the ceremonial drum, his son had died. And he said, I quit. See, these ceremonies, no good. I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with it. At that point in time, people used to rub charcoal on their face to show they were in mourning. They wouldn't show excessive vanity. They'd leave their hair unbraided. Um, and so the people stopped him from leaving. They grabbed him by the hand, almost like a child, walked him around back to his spot in front of the drum and sat him down there. And then they very carefully washed all the charcoal off of his face and combed his hair and gave him fresh clothes. And they piled up blankets and other goods as high as he could sit, begging him to keep on with the drum and with life. And then they sang songs and they had their warriors get up, four of them, and they danced around the drum and danced around the man. And then they just wiped his tears. And they marked him red where they wiped his tears. And the next one repeated the process and the next one. So they did that four times. And they sang a fifth song and they pulled him up by the hands again and danced him back into the circle and then let go of him. And he kept dancing on his own, kind of like reintegrating him to carry on with life. Now, today, we don't typically rub charcoal on our faces or leave our hair unbraided when we're in mourning, but we repeat this ceremony. And we'll tell people, 
And there, the other thing they provided then was a set of teachings for dealing with grief and loss. And so we repeat the ceremony. So, you know, I, over the past five years or so, lost my dad and my mom. So I went through the ceremony a couple of times and I've helped other people through it many times. And we still grab people by the hand, walk them around, seat them at the drum, pile up gifts, wash their face, their rebraid their hair. And even just being touched by other people is something that most people don't do. Um, sing the songs, wipe the tears, raise them up and bring them back into the circle. And so among the things we will tell people is, you know, unlike in the rest of the world where we say, turn the frown upside down, you know, like Robin Williams famously said, you know, people don't fake it, you know, about having a hard time. They, they pretend to be well. And so we will tell people, you don't have to do that. You bring your problems right in here and you share them publicly and we will share the load. And we tell people even basic things. The scientists are finally starting to catch up with our elders. We say things like get up in the morning, your spirit's strong in the morning and it'll help dry up your tears. There's no way around grief or magic pill to make it go away. You just have to go through it but you can go through it together as part of our community. Um, we'll tell people don't drown your grief in drugs, alcohol, or any, any unhealthy or addictive um, patterns or substances, but come to your ceremonies. And then we kind of walk them through some of the ceremonies that we do. Um, and I think what it provides is not just a bunch of don'ts, but a bunch of do's. Here's what you do. And through the process for people who do it, they're kind of, reconnecting and more deeply connecting with their fellow humans um, and being integrated into the circle and not chastised or shamed um, about being or feeling out of sorts. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like in the, in the Hawaiian tradition where they talk about Lomi, you probably heard Lomi, Lomi massage, work the bad stuff out. When somebody causes an offense, they Lomi and they talk about it and they receive a hug from everybody in the you know, circle and they're reintegrated. So that's kind of what they do with restorative justice practices and things like that. Um, but it's a healing disposition and a communal disposition towards healing that, um, you know, these are just small examples of ways in which we can approach that instead of, oh, you got a problem, you better go see a shrink, you know, dang, I don't know anything about that. You know, I'm going to get back to my busy life. And so it's just very different. Um, and I have found that to be very helpful to me. And I know it's been a great help to many other people that we help. And we have many, many ceremonies and things that speak to all of these things. And I, I think it makes a tremendous difference. And these are things that are kind of enculturated at various milestones throughout a person's life to look to your community rather than turn away from them, you know, when you're having problems which makes so much sense when you take into account what we've been talking about, where people are just all about themselves and being individuals. Right. They no longer have that community support and love and connection. And then are we surprised that so many people are struggling with their mental health? Right. Right. And it's, I mean, it goes to everything. Like as an example, we have another ceremony, like I don't know I live here in rural Northern Minnesota we have, we do lots of traditional harvesting. I know it's pretty green out there right now. We, uh, you know, we hunt fish, pick wild rice, do things like that. When someone becomes a successful hunter, we have a ceremony. Um, and usually people are teenagers or maybe even teeny boppers a little bit before teenagers when, uh, when they become successful hunters. And we have this ceremony where there's, you know, we gather the not just nuclear family, but, you know, the whole extended family and namesakes and, you know, community people. And there's a prayer. And instead of just eating the food, we kind of ritually feed the successful hunter by offering them a spoon of the food, saying their name, they have to refuse and say, no, I'm thinking about kids who don't have enough to eat. Ah, okay. So I put it back get another spoonful, say their name and offer again. They say, no, I'm thinking of my elders who can't get out in the woods and hunt for themselves. Ah, okay. So put it back and offer again. And they refuse again. No, I'm, I'm thinking of my family and my community and the people who came here today to support me. And then we'll offer a fourth time and then they can eat. And then we'll say, 
well, you just changed your life. Because up until today, you were what we call the dependent. You depended on everyone in this room to provide all your food. And there they are, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents. But today, you provide for all of us. And that's what it means to be an adult. From today on, you'll have a special power, and it's the power to gather resources. And when you do, you think about kids who don't have enough, and elders who can't get it for themselves, and your family, and your community. And they take the rest of their kill packaged up venison and they give it away. So they're impoverished, but rich. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of kids. So we, we've done a lot of experimenting on them over the years. And they've all been going through this ceremony. And it's so impactful. This one, one of the boys, when he was 16, I, we're sitting around visiting with a friend of mine who was saying, oh, my back's sore. I haven't been able to hunt in two years. And he didn't say anything, but he went out, he harvested a deer, he cleaned it up drove over to my friend's house, filled up his freezer, and then he left. And my friend called and said, I, I, I didn't even know people remember that teaching. What a fine young man. Can I give him some gifts? You know, and sure. And even to this day, you know, they like stay connected. Like it had such an impact on the both of them. Same kid, a couple years later, he's going to go to senior prom. So we went and got him this tux ordered and stuff like that. And he was going to double date with his buddy. And his friend's mom was saying, well, my next check, I'll get you the tux, I promise. And then her car went down and she said, I, I'm so sorry, I just, I can't. So my son said, oh, forget that, man. Come on. So they went to the tux store. Son canceled his own tux rental, took the money. They went to the Goodwill. They bought a couple of tuxes. Everybody went to the prom. When I found out, I said, son, if you just said something, I would have like rented the kid a tux. And he said, but dad. It's my job to think of people who don't have enough. Such a simple thing, you know? And so it enculturates a sense of responsibility to others. And one of the things I've come to realize about cultural practices, whatever they are, sure, they reflect the values of a people, but they also shape the values of a people. And so often in modern society, You know, the coming of age ceremonies are getting a driver's license, experimenting with alcohol, getting laid, you know, things like that. And even prom reinforces those things. It's a mini pretend wedding with the dress up and the fancy meal and the promenade and the pictures and the dance and the expectations. But what would happen if we centered other things and if we messaged differently? Like in our language, we have a word, anikobijigan. It's the same word we'll use for my great-grandparent and my great-grandchild. That spans seven generations. And it literally means my line. And so we kind of have this belief that like seven generations ago, our people were probably going through a hard time dealing with treaties and oppression and dispossession and whatnot. But they're thinking, what will they need seven generations from now? And they very obviously believed that we would need land, clean water, community, our language, our culture, you know, and they did everything in their power to engineer that for us. So we should be thinking seven generations from now, no one's going to remember our names, no matter how many books we write or whatever. But if there's a chance that they have this value system about thinking about kids who don't have enough and elders who can't get it for themselves and their family and their community. If they can have our culture, our language, connection to this place, clean water, I I think they'll need the same things. So we should try to engineer that. When you think in terms of seven generations, then the decision about the pipeline, you know, or do you, put in the mall or do you pass regulations around recycling or electric vehicles or whatever it happens to be, it gets a lot easier to do the right thing. Yeah. That's very profound and beautiful. I like that a lot. Frank. Yeah. Well, speaking of the pipeline, I'm curious about your take on activism. You come from a part of the country where we had the standing rock event a few years ago and Winona LaDuke has honored the earth in that in that area as well. So what are you seeing in the world of activism and how would you come down? What, what is your philosophy there? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I do believe in social activism and I think it can have a profound impact on things. I do also believe that, um, you know, the, most of the corporations are thinking of their next quarterly shareholder statement, you know, rather than the long-term vitality of the environment in which they're operating. So um, they usually resist or at least passively resist or try to circumvent rules, regulations, and other things that might, you know, mitigate the harm. Um, I do think it's been difficult. Like there've been, you know, some pipeline protests like this one against the Sandpiper pipeline successfully defeated. The, The delays were so long and cost so much money, they abandoned the whole project, you know, but there's now like the line three replacement, which instead of replacing it with the same size pipe, they replaced it with a bigger pipe to absorb the flow that would have gone through Sandpiper. So they like still found a way to kind of get what they wanted. And sometimes it's hard to feel like, you know, the activism is really going to prohibit, um, you know, the development of a pipeline. And frankly, even if you did, they'd be bringing it on a truck or a train and that's not necessarily better <laughs> environmentally, you know. And so it feels hard to win on some of these issues. Um, but I do think it has an effect. And one of, you know, some of the effects are mobilization of resources, um, sharing and, and communicating of information and perspective. And, you know, it's like right out of Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where he would say, there has never once been a case in the history of humans where the oppressor has liberated the oppressed. Always the oppressed have had to rally, argue, protest, endure, you know, harm to like prick the consciousness of the oppressor to make change. So women's suffrage didn't happen because a bunch of dudes were sitting around smoking cigars in the Senate saying, should we give our wives and daughters the right to vote? Sure. Sounds like a great idea. They did it because women were protesting, being beaten with police batons, and eventually an all-male Senate had enough and voted for women's suffrage. So I think, you know, the role of activism is less to like defeat a particular project. Although once in a while that does happen, but more to shift consciousness to a different way of, of doing things. And that's probably where the biggest and most long lasting positive impact is. I think you can look at the civil rights movement and, you know, whatever the, the riots in Selma, you know, or whatever did not achieve the immediate objective, but did affect the way a whole nation looks at this and eventually positioned a Texas legislator who was president of the United States to sign off on the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and and do something about Jim Crow, you know? And so ultimately, I I think that is probably the biggest positive impact. The other thing is colonization has always worked by with a divide and conquer approach. If the British wanted to conquer Ireland, you know, it's most successful by hiring a bunch of Irishmen, putting them in the British army and sending them out to kill their fellow countrymen or taking members of one vanquished tribe and using them as scouts, you know, in the U S army to take on the next one, or the only jobs that, you know, black freedmen could find were in the 10th cavalry killing natives, you know, and it's always functioned by keeping oppressed groups fighting one another, including poor whites who have always been co-opted into alliance with wealthy white elites to preserve the hierarchy and racial caste system, even though it does not serve poor whites well. And most whites who died for the Confederacy during the U.S. Civil War had never owned a slave. You know, and that's how these systems have worked. So I, I think when you look at... um you know, affecting change, we have to be aware that that's how it is function. One of the other things that happens with, you know, with social activism is we can break down those barriers. There were lots of people, not just native people who were engaged in 
protest at Standing Rock and things like that, and including, you know, white, black, Latinx, and so forth. And similarly, you know, Black Lives Matter, it's not just black people who are upset with the murder of George Floyd, you know, and I, I think when we are able to work across lines is when we see big change, you know, Martin Luther King's famous speech at the, you know, at in Washington, D.C., the I Have a Dream speech, which had so many white people in attendance. It was the fact that there were so many white people in attendance that made it as effective as it was, you know, shouldn't have to be that way, but that was part of its effectiveness, you know? So I, I do think that that is where we see biggest results with regard to social activism. I do think it's important to be strategic with it because there are a lot of young people engaged in social activism. And once you get a major felony conviction, it affects everything from your ability to get gainful employment and vote and all kinds of things. So I think we have to evaluate risks and rewards um, and be strategic and thoughtful and um, take the high road, uh, you know, with those things so that we have the best results. But I am not naive, you know, I, reform tactics get you too little, too late, token representation and very little change. They will be happy to outlast you, redirect you, or buy enough of you, you know, to keep the status quo. So sometimes, you know, and then there's also the the pitfall with revolutionary tactics or that if you even succeed in tearing something down, which is pretty hard to do, but sometimes happens, you still have to build something afterwards. Like the ideas of the Russian revolution were pretty beautiful, right? Like topple the hierarchy from each according to their ability to each according to their need. But when they had to build something, the cultural building blocks were the same cultural building blocks and you still got hierarchy and oppression in Russia, you know? And so I think regardless of which tactical approach you take, reform or revolution, you have to um, be most mindful about what you're building for what comes next. Mm -hmm. um, and for me personally, I, you know, I have, you know, been out to Standing Rock a couple of times, you know, I, I believe in these sorts of things, but I also spend most of my time building indigenous language immersion schools, doing community service work, publishing books, educating, sharing and disseminating information, pulling people together, tending to the strength of community, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's really important. As we come to the end, Anton, I wanted to ask you like one final question. And, you know, if you could kind of summarize maybe like your top three, you know, what would you say about your own journey and how your own Ojibwe heritage has influenced your path? Like what would be the top three things that have helped you get to where you are and something that, you know, somebody listening to this could actually learn from that? Hmm. You know, there have been a number of things and there's so many stories to get at all of them. But I, I think one of the things is that it is so valuable and critical that we adopt a justice approach as opposed to a just us approach. That anyone who gets into competing victimization or the oppression Olympics, you've already lost. Um, and those sorts of comparisons or, you know, whatever, like I remember they, like in Minnesota, they actually, um, had passed some legislation about, um, higher ed support for people who've been in foster care. And I heard somebody saying, well, when are they going to do something for the native community? Right. So instead of like, let's celebrate that as a win, by the way, lots of the people in foster care are native, you know, and also continue to press for these other things, not just us, but justice. Um, and then, you know, also that although it is really unfair that people who have endured any kind of oppression have to do extra lifting, we do. 
you know, like Uncle Sam's not going to come walking out of the bush with my language on a silver platter and say, sorry about the last 500 years. Even if they wanted to, they wouldn't have it to give. We have to engineer our own luck. We have to build the things and be the people that, you know, we want to be. And no one's going to be able to do that for us. So there's a heavier burden on those who've been given all the extra baggage, but you have to do the lift. And also in doing the lifting, just like going to the gym, it's not always comfortable, but if you acclimate to it, you can get used to the extra lifting and it makes you much, much stronger. Yeah. Love it. Fantastic. Anton, that was amazing. Awesome chatting to you. And uh, we'd love to do it again because I had tons of more questions, but want to be respectful of your time. So thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Speak to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye-bye. So that was great, right? Hey, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Very, uh, very well-spoken person. It's always, it's always nice. And of course, you know, he made some incredibly important points. I had like a ton of other questions, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, being respectful of time and, you know, we want to also make it user-friendly. I know that there are long form conversations, but not everybody can spend three hours listening yeah, to something. Yeah. So I think that's definitely cool and definitely one of the people that I would love to have on again. It would be awesome to have him and Four Arrows on a call. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. Hi, Dr. King here, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and Frank as we explore with our guests ways to return the human animal to wild health. For more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or visit humananimal.info to find out more about my coaching programs, read the blog, get your hands on some human animal gear, or explore our upcoming events. Until the next time, stay wild and free.